When you buy a book on Amazon, you've probably noticed you're likely to get a message suggesting some other books you might like to try too, similar to the one that you just bought. You may have also had similar experiences by swiping your loyalty card at your favorite grocery store or clothing store. You'll get in-store coupons or emails from the business offering items they know that you seem to like. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories, a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our topic today is personalizing the world, how businesses have moved from mass communication to a very highly personalized communication. To prepare you for our discussion, Stats and Stories reporter Justin Maskulinski looks at the tectonic shift in how businesses are doing marketing today. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when companies relied on mass marketing to convince you to buy their products. TV and radio commercials, newspaper, magazine ads, or direct mail were considered a key part of marketing. But the director of interactive media studies at Miami University says marketing has undergone a dramatic shift. Glenn Platt says using sex and sizzle to sell products has been replaced with tons of personal data that marketers can use to reach us. The game of marketers changes from being about convincing people that this is going to change their life or or sort of drawing people towards their product and instead saying, hey, I know something about you. I know what you like. I know what makes you happy. This is a utility proposition here. I can make your life better. Miami marketing professor Jim Coyle agrees. He says your personal information is valuable currency that marketers can use in a positive way. We're all learning, right? The marketers are learning what what we as consumers want, and consumers are, are, are learning how valuable that information is and what they can do with it, how they can spend it to get something of value back. Glenn Platt says companies like Kroger use loyalty cards to determine what you buy and offer you coupons they know you'll use. He says that's more effective than having a celebrity trying to sell you products. And so for marketers at Kroger, loyalty cards create this opportunity to say, look, here's this win-win proposition. We can find you things that are consistent with what you've bought before that are cheaper, better, faster. In exchange for that, we know you're gonna come back to Kroger more often because we've customized that. Jim Coyle says Kroger and Amazon are great examples of companies that have used our personal information to offer things of value. But Coyle says it's critical for companies to find a fresh approach. I think the problem with the loyalty cards can be that they can get kind of old. And and it's easy if, if you're a marketer and you're doing a great job with a loyalty program and I'm a marketer, I see what you're doing, I can, I can copy that, right? So there's always this need to make sure that your loyalty card goes above and beyond what the others are doing. Personalized marketing can be helpful, but some consumers are concerned about how companies share their data with others. Coyle says if you look at the bottom of the page when you're online, you'll find boxes that warn you when there are cookies on that site that will be following what you do. He thinks marketers are trying to be more open. I think that that they need to keep it simple. They need to, when you first go to a site or when they first invite you to join a program, sort of pull out the most salient points of their privacy policy that are going to be most relevant to us as consumers and make sure we understand them and also give us the opportunity to delve further into those privacy policies if that's the sort of consumer that we are where we're really concerned about what sort of deal we're making with them. Glenn Platt envisions a day when we will have more control over marketing. I actually think the future of this is where each of us becomes a chief marketing officer of ourselves. There will be a CMO of you, and that is you, and you manage your data, and you decide who gets your data and who gets paid for your data and how your data gets used. And if somebody is making money from your data, 
you want to be the beneficiary of that. Glenn Platt says companies must be transparent about how they use our personal information or who they share it with. For Stats and Stories, I'm Justin Maskulinski. Joining me on Stats and Stories for our discussion of this new business model of highly personalized communication, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest today is the Managing Director of Customer Knowledge at Dunhumby, Paul Hunter. Uh, he's in that field of trying to find out, speaking of feelings, what customers feel. And... Uh, how they do things, and that helps Dunhumby's clients improve their marketing strategies. And he has over 25 years of experience in this field. Paul works with some of the world's largest retailers and brands. And Paul, I just kind of wanted to jump in right there because a lot of people may not know much about Dunhumby and exactly what you do and how marketing has really changed in the last decade or so with all the new uh, media technology that's now available. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Definitely the technology, uh, the data landscape has changed, not just in the past 10 years, but uh, it's probably really been the past 20 plus years. And it really started, I think, in the consumer packaged goods world with the advent of the barcode. Uh, the barcode was first introduced in 1973, and that really began the digitization of what people buy. And you used to be able to get data uh, you know, on individual uh, cities or individual stores in terms of what people were buying. And then around really the uh, 1980s or so, loyalty cards began to become mainstream, and that took it down to another granular level of you could begin to pair up what people were buying to the individual household. That's really what Dunhumby does for its clients is look at the household-level data, and um, it's really uh, altered marketing, I would say, over the past 10 years in particular, you know, using your time frame, from going from you know, marketers just doing mass advertising on TV, on radio, uh, and they still do it, but uh, it's opened up a huge avenue of really talking to people one-to-one -one as opposed to a mass world. John Baylor, go to you for the next question. So, so, Paul, our, our lives certainly have been changed with the, the introduction of using these loyalty cards. I mean, it's something that was inconceivable you know, for many, most of us even a decade ago, and now it's, it's so routine. So one question is, you know, what, what happens when we do this? When, mm -hmm. when we enter our, our loyalty card number or, or it's swiped, how is, what, what data are being co collected from that, and then ultimately how might that be used? Uh, it's a very good question. I'm, I'm going to actually start... Uh, a little bit back because while we call them loyalty cards, um, they're not necessarily a measure of loyalty. Um, if, I, if I go to Chicago and um, I, I talk to somebody on the street, I might find that they have a Dominic's card, a Jewel card, a Walgreens card, a Rite Aid card. So a lot of people have different cards. Um, and from that 1980s through today, everybody, every retailer has got these loyalty cards, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're loyal to them. And um, so they're, they're, it's a great mechanism to, to pair up what people buy to the individual household. And that's, that triggers um, a recording in the database of the retailer that they, they understand that household one, two, three purchased this bottle of water, this brand of laundry detergent, uh, this brand of uh, toothpaste. But... Uh, then the, then the retailer has to understand, okay, we have 
millions of these households, can we begin to figure out who's loyal? So how, and, so how uh, is it, how's loyalty defined? Do you have to operationalize <clears throat> that in some way? Absolutely. And uh, a retailer only has the data from their own stores. So they don't, they don't have the liberty of looking at, you know, Walgreens doesn't have the liberty of looking at what Rite Aid has and vice versa. So what somebody like Walgreens will do is they'll look at a um, uh, very common statistical technique or mathematical technique. Um, um, and it really began in the 1950s with direct marketing. Uh, it's called RFM, which is recency, frequency, and monetary value. So it's an RFM segmentation. It uh, doesn't really use fancy statistics, but it uses basic math. And it says, uh, take it at the household level, uh, sum up all of the data in the database for each individual card holder, look at the recency, how, uh, when were they last in our store, the frequency, uh, how often do they come into our store in a certain time period, maybe it's two months or six months, and then the monetary value, how much do they spend with us. So you can begin to get a, a measure of loyalty by just looking at that recency, frequency, and monetary value of, of your individual households. And so for a retailer like a Walgreens, they might find that while they hold data on 80 million households, really it's 8 million that make up 80% of their sales. Quick question on that too. Let's say I go to Kroger. I think a lot of people, oh, I swiped my Kroger card and I saved X number, and they, the cashier usually, you save so much money this time. But what you're also looking at is what are my habits? And does that also help the stores now determine what items they may want to offer on sale to their loyalty card customers in general? Absolutely. Um, you're taking taking a, uh, a retailer like Kroger. Um, and the other thing you have to keep in mind is um, – um, going back to that frequency is a grocery store is uh, a wonderful opportunity to get more observations. So uh, statistics, uh, in particular looking at, at time series analyses, is that we love data on an individual household that's plentiful over time. So if you're really loyal to a Kroger or um, a Safeway or a Walmart and they're your main shop for groceries, uh, the typical loyal shopper will be in there 70 times a year, where maybe like a Walgreens, you might only see them maybe 10 times a year, and uh, let's say a Macy's or um, you know a Target, you might only see them three to four times a year. So um, the grocery store is a, uh, an environment that I would say it's rich with observations, uh, rich with time series analyses, and so uh, you're really limited only really by your, what I would call your statistical imagination in terms of what you can do with the data. And so, um, you know, one thing that we can begin to do is paint a profile of um, your lifestyle. So um, we can pretty much tell if you, you don't, when you registered for the card, you didn't tell us that you have a pet. We can tell if you have a cat based on what you buy. Uh, when you registered for the card, you didn't tell us your age. But we can tell you, we can pretty much approximate what age you are based on the products you buy. You might be buying, um, um, you know, diapers for children. You might be buying um, different types of food for certain type of dietary needs. So there's a lot of rich information that we can begin to distill through the behavioral data uh, that that comes through uh, the till. And then going back to the question of loyalty, um, you know, we know that you might hold four or five cards in your wallet. But the challenge now is back to the retailer in terms of if this is really a loyalty card, 
what are you as an organization going to be doing differently for your best customers? And so the question is, is the loyalty card is not necessarily customers being loyal to the retailer, but we would challenge that it's what will the retailer do to be loyal to its best customers? So there comes your, your point on promotions or um, particular offers that are highly customized, highly personalized. And hence, I think the title of, of this episode, Personalized in the World, is retailers have rich, uh, rich data, uh, almost too much data that you can shake a stick at it. But um, you, if you use the data intelligently, retailers can be very loyal and, and serve up highly customized promotions for if you have a cat, why don't we give you a free bag of cat food? And thank you for coming into our store. And so that's how it's used. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And today, we're talking about personalizing the world, how businesses are moving from mass communication to highly personalized marketing. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University journalism, media journalism and film chair Richard Campbell, statistics department chair John Baylor, and our special guest from Dunhumby is Paul Hunter, the managing director of customer knowledge. And uh, Richard Campbell, go to you for the the next question. Paul, following up on the loyalty issue, what do you do with issues of privacy? I mean, do you? We have lots of concerns about how much companies know about individual behavior, and how do you handle that sort of problem with customers? Because it's probably the sort of flip side of loyalty: concerns about, oh, these companies know way too much about me, and is that something that you you have to? Is that a terrain you have to to maneuver through? De- definitely. Uh, privacy is uh, something that we take very uh, seriously. It's, it's very important. Uh, really, what it comes down to is trust. And, um, you know, uh, if you take a retailer um, who has a fair amount of data on an individual household, uh, when you sign up for the loyalty card, uh, the very first question, one of the few questions, uh, there's a handful of questions that you have to answer, not just your personal identifying information, but how do you want this information used? How do you want the retailer using this information? Most retailers will have that. Uh, a question along the lines of, do you want? Do you mind if we use this for marketing information? Some people say, no, they don't want it to be used. And some say, yes, they do want it to be used. Um, those that uh, don't want to be contacted, we don't use their information. Uh, so they're not going to get those uh, special offers. But for those that uh, have elected to leverage it for marketing, then they do get, uh, you know, they do get value from it. Um, the retailer uh, you know, very much protects that information. Um, the personal identifying information is not seen by very many people. Um, most of what we work with is just a unique number. Mm-hmm. So um, to us, it's a discrete uh, data point that allows us to look at individual households. But when it comes time to actually communicate to the person, whether it's email or mail, sometimes maybe text messages depending on the retailer, um, then that, uh, that unique number is attached to the PII information, but only for those people who've elected to, to be contacted. John Baylor, we'll go to you for the next question. Thank you. Uh, just a quick follow-up. With, with the data that you're collecting, in, not you are collecting, but, but are, that is being collected, uh, I imagine that there's also a combination with other data sources. So you might have identification of some characteristic of a person shopping there. Do you ever try to link that with other data sets 
that may be from the census or some other other sources to try to get to get other insight? Uh, depending on the business need, the answer to that is yes. Um, you know, there, there's and and it may not necessarily be linked at the individual household level. It it might be linked at um, uh, you know an individual city or region uh, of the country. Uh, but you can definitely begin to get uh, by what we would call data fusion, which is what you're saying is can you begin to fuse databases together, triangulate databases together. We do indeed look at U.S. government um, census information that tells us about demographics. Um, there's other advertising databases that you can begin to look at, such as uh, TV or radio. Uh, you can also begin to fuse. Um, there's more and more information coming out on the Internet that you can begin to fuse as well. So uh, data fusion, depending on the business objective, can be quite powerful. Richard? Paul, uh, this is a little bit different track here, but one of the things that I do when I teach our media survey course, we look at media economics, we look at uh, new products and how hard it is for, in, in my case, new media products to make it onto the market. I know it's a very high failure rate for new products in business. Is the kind of thing that you're doing with data helping with that? And uh, uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, new products. I mean, we could we could spend uh, several hours on that. I don't think we have time permits that. But um, the uh, the most important measure in marketing, in my opinion, is something called trial and repeat. Mm -hmm. And um, trial is how many people, you know, or, or what percent of people tried your product. Um, I think you can pretty much get anybody to try something once. Trial is the responsibility of marketing and sales. You know, get the product on shelf, uh, get the word out through mass media or direct marketing. So uh, trial is a critical measure that we maintain in the database in terms of how many people tried the product. But then repeat is probably the most important measure within the trial and repeat uh, continuum. Repeat is how many people tried it, came back and bought it. You know, depending on the purchase cycle, I mean, you, you need to buy laundry detergent every 64 days. You need to buy toothpaste every 92 days. You need to buy a gallon of milk every two weeks. How often are you coming back and buying this particular unique new item? Um, and depending on the category you're in, we tend to see some repeat measures are as lackluster. Uh, so used to be state-of-the-art uh, in the industry with panel data from the 1970s, and even today some companies still use it, is trial and repeat measures take maybe seven, eight months to get. Uh, well, with the loyalty card databases, and and depending on if you look at a uh, you know a set of households that always are in your stores, you can begin to look at trial and repeat in a much more rapid fashion. You don't have to wait eight months after the product launches. You can look at you know two weeks after the product launches. We can pretty much estimate if the product's going to make it or not. The benefits to that are manyfold. Um, from a retailer perspective, they only have they have a finite amount of space. Um, so if, if depending on the purchase cycle of that category, if repeat rates aren't up there, um, then uh, the retailer may pull the product and bring something else in. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the manufacturers can be looking at this data and say, you know, trial is really good, but repeat's not. Um, can we begin to uh, find out why and uh, you know maybe do something on our end, uh, whether through marketing or improving the product to try and salvage it? So. Yeah, we, we, de we definitely have a huge amount of failure still in new products today, but through statistics, through the metrics that we hold, um, the 
you're no longer waiting eight months. The, the window of success is getting down to, to months, to a handful of months, not, not a half a year or a full year. You said earlier when we were talking <clears throat> before the program that companies actually like when, and they learn a lot from failed products, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's true. Um, you know, all the manufacturers out there, the big ones, General Mills, Nestle, um, they're committed to new products. Uh, they're looking for the next big billion-dollar idea, the next big successful story. And, um, you know, they, 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 I think they've kind of recognized that when they launch things, they may not make it. Uh, but they have put in place personnel, R&D departments, uh, systems to, uh, to learn from it. Um, I think it, 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 it keeps excitement in their categories as well. Um, they have a dedicated sales force. Uh, that dedicated sales force needs something exciting to talk about. And so hence, uh, I think there always will be new products, but um, the precision and the measurements around whether they're going to make it or not have just, they've just really been compressed through time. And um, I think at the end of the day, I think the manufacturers have to be smarter and sharper when they approach a retailer about what really is this, is this a point of differentiation, and if so, how? The other thing that we can tell from new products through the data is their, what we would call, um, and this gets a little bit more sophisticated in the statistics, but we call it source of volume. You know, a retailer is also getting sophisticated with the data and the measurements is that if, if, if you're bringing in me a new box of um, cereal, um, the first question a retailer may ask is, well, what's your point of differentiation? And if I put you on my shelf, where is the volume going to come from? You know, is it going to come from my own label brand? Is it going to come from another major brand? Uh, what price point are you going to be charging for it? And through the, through the metrics that the loyalty card data provide, you know, even not only can we look at trial and repeat, but we can actually say where it's coming from. So if the product is going to make it and it has really good repeat rates, we can also through the data say that because it's going to make it, we can also tell you who you're going to have to delist because uh, it's cannibalized from the other item. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and again, our topic today, personalizing the world, how businesses are moving from mass communication to highly personalized marketing strategies. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell and our special guest, Paul Hunter, the Managing Director of Customer Knowledge for Dunhumby, which works with some of the world's largest retailers and brands. Go back to uh, John Baylor for our next question. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, just a quick quick follow-up there, Paul, on, on this issue of, of these new products. I mean, with new products, you're targeting particular segments. You know, you'd like to impact as large a population as possible. You, you had said earlier about the idea of painting a, a, a profile of lifestyle with some of the information that you're using. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of market segmentation and how you, some of the data that you collect could be used to, to think about sort of this, the, the, the smaller populations that you would customize a product for? Absolutely. Um, segmentation, uh, you know, which is a statistical technique, is something that we, we thrive on and we embrace uh, wholeheartedly within our, within our business. And it's kind of what we would call is um, within marketing, the two extremes are mass and one-to-one. -one. And uh, mass communication is, goes out to everybody. Uh, and then the one-to-one -one communication, um, everybody gets a different message. But segmentation allows us to play to the middle. And um, 
segmentation is what we really use, um, and we use it for uh, a variety of techniques. And depending on um, the retailer, we may hold up to 80 different segments on one individual. And um, typically, though, the most common are about five to seven segments, depending on the retailer. But uh, we use a variety of techniques uh, to get to the segmentation, but the most common that we use is what we call cluster analysis. And uh, what clustering does is it says, what are common traits that would allow us to group one set of households versus another? So if you go back and you look at um, uh, you know, maybe one of the techniques or one of the business initiatives is uh, we're looking to send a marketing message to um, a set of households that might be more, let's say, elderly. Well, um, we, have, we hold a, a set of uh, underlying data points that would say, uh, you know, there's certain items in the store that would indicate that they're more elderly. So maybe it's um, uh, they're buying certain types of uh, uh, pharmaceutical or there's not not pharmaceutical, but let's say over the counter types of drugs. They're buying certain types of, uh, let's say, adult incontinence types of uh, uh, things Th that would allow us to say, OK, here is a group of households that we can begin to cluster on. And nobody else is buying these, so they're not the elderly set of households. So we can begin to say that maybe through the database we found a very small percentage, but maybe it's 3 or 4% that we could call the elderly cluster. And so then if you're a retailer that's trying to win business or reward loyalty um, to the elderly population through your marketing message, that statistical technique clustering analysis allows us to satisfy that need in a much more precise way that's much more highly personalized than doing mass communication. Um, likewise, that clustering technique then affords the retailer the opportunity to do one-to-one -one communication. So you might have two different sets of elderly households, one who's very loyal, one who's maybe not as loyal. And so you can begin to intertwine and nest multiple segments together to say that not only do we want to segment elderly households, we want to segment elderly households that are not as loyal and do maybe an acquisition type of uh, marketing initiative. Um, so that, that's essentially how they're brought together. Uh, and uh, we're a big fan of, of clustering. We're a big fan of segmentation. Paul, I'm kind of wondering, you know, right now you can, you can look at my loyalty card, what might, like you said, even age group I'm likely to be in, those kinds of things. How about the future? Are you able to kind of say, well, down the road, Bob's going to need or Richard or John are going to need this? Are, are, are we at that point where you can kind of predict future uh, shopping trends? Um, prediction requires forecasting. Uh, mm -hmm. And and uh, underlying that is statistics, of course. Um, we would like to say that forecasting is an art, not a science. So uh, any type of forecasting will have degrees of error. While we can do it, we're probably not as confident or robust in that. So um, what we, in lieu of that, what we can definitely have done and can do uh, for a retailer or for a client is what we would call profile their their journey through life. And, uh, and you, you may not do it for an individual year. You might do it for a group of, let's say, uh, five years. So... Uh, what does a typical family between the ages of 20 and 25, what are some of the categories that they play in or depend upon more 
than, let's say, a family between the ages of 25 and 30 and 50 and 55. So we definitely can profile that journey through life and um, begin to then say, this, this individual household looks like they're beginning to go and move from one segment of uh, you know, 50 to 55 into 55 to 60. These are the types of things that we should be marketing to them differently. So um, it's not as precise, but we definitely would, in all, in, in the clients that we work with, they're smart to think about not just serving them today, but serving their future needs. So that's one technique that we use. Got a couple more questions yet uh, before we wrap up with Paul Hunter. Richard Campbell, I'll go to you next, and then back to John Baylor. Paul, one of my obligations running a media journalism and film program is we train a lot of young journalists. And one of the things that's a challenge for us is having them cover stories that have data and statistics in them. Um, because they're not, this isn't their specialty area, but they have to write those kinds of stories. So do you have any kind of advice for journalists or particular pet peeves, things that you see that aren't covered as well as they should be in, in your area? Well, first off, uh, my, my counsel to your students would be to embrace statistics and to embrace data because there's only going to be more and more of it coming out. Yeah. Um, is your question more about, um, in our industry of data mining, things that are my pet peeves? Is that, is that your question? A lot of times, the kind of work that everybody does and mm -hmm. that you do in terms of marketing are only known to the public through journalism because mm -hmm. that's who comes and reports this. Yes. So I want to know how well the journalists sort of represent your area and your field and your work. And, you know, when you're reading stories on, that have data in them, are there things that sort of jump out at you as they didn't get this right? Got it. I would say that uh, the coverage of data mining and um, uh, leveraging it for business purposes is not getting as much coverage as I would like to see. Um, that being said, um, within the coverage that I do see, a few areas that... Um, that I believe that I would personally like journalism to uh, maybe uncover more is, and, and this is maybe my own pet peeve, mm -hmm. using your words, is let's say quality control. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we make all, we're all humans, we make mistakes. Uh, when you fuse databases or when you, um, you look at an analysis, typically it's an analyst sitting by themselves uh, and they're under pressure, they have time sensitive material that they have to get out the door. If you had another uh, person looking over their shoulder, would they have caught an error in the code? Uh, would they have caught an error in their interpretation of the analysis? So, mm -hmm. you know, I, th I think quality control is an area that could be um, uh, more uncovered mm -hmm. in the techniques and uh, how, how you, you get to better quality insights. Um, that's me personally, and the reason for that is I've been a victim of it. Uh, I've done it myself, um, and um, I've, 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 I've received poor quality information because things were rushed and people weren't spending time on it. Um, I think the other area is, um, going back to my earlier comment about there's more and more data coming out, uh, is is not to be fearful of statistics. Um, it, it, at the end of the day, it's common sense. Uh, but to embrace statistics and maybe talk a little bit more about the methods, um, a little bit more about the math. And um, I think our country... Uh, will only be stronger if we embrace statistics 
if we embrace data analysis and mathematics more so than we have in the past, because it's where the future is going to be. And it's not just data mining, it's all industries have reams and reams of data that need to be analyzed. Okay. So for journalism to actually be brave and, and explore and explain to the common person a methodology such as regression analysis mm -hmm. or clustering analysis, mm -hmm. that, that, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Thank you. John Baylor, time for a quick question from you. Sure, absolutely. I, I was going to challenge you on the idea of embracing statistics and data analysis, but I think I'll let that pass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the choir echoes amen. Uh, so my, my, last, my last question for you is, you know, what kind of skills, quantitative and otherwise, would, would someone need to be able to contribute in your field? Um, the first one is, is uh, I think, a skill that some, some of us have, some don't, but curiosity is... Uh, is a, a natural desire to ask questions about why or um, how. And um, because if, if you're not curious, you can quickly get bored with the data. So um, to be naturally curious, I think, is the first one. I think, that obviously, the uh, you know a, a nice mix of working with computers, uh, you know, both personal computers and mid-range computers, Linux or Unix. Uh, you know, not to be intimidated by the computer platforms. And then uh, recognizing that there's certain statistical packages that you may have to use, um, whether that's R or uh, something else of that nature that, that uh, allows you to mine very large databases. So uh, to me, that is um, probably three quick skill sets, uh, is uh, curiosity, uh, computer skills and analytical skills. But uh, probably the most important is what I would call to be able to walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and that's to actually take the insights and to tell, tell a story. Why does it matter? What do I do differently as a business? And that's, that's the harder one to find. Paul Hunter of Dunhumby, thank you so much for joining us on Stats and Stories today. Thank you. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your emails to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.